Well, two years ago when I uh, first preached, I shared a bunch of t-shirts that I had with you, uh, some of my favorite t-shirts as a way to kind of get to know me. And uh, I shared one of my favorite shirts is, one, is this one right here, Grace Wins Every Time. And, and it's the one that I've gotten probably the most comments on as I wear it. You know, we're, we're on a hike in Tennessee and someone down on the path says, oh, Grace wins every time. And, and you can tell as they say it, they, they know. I mean, it, Grace has won in their life. They, they've experienced it. But two weeks ago, I was wearing it up in Door County, and it was a little different this time. I heard someone say something like, Grace wins. And I looked over, and this lady pointed to another lady. Grace wins. Her name was Grace. Yeah. It was a little different. I'm sure if I would have hung around, they probably would have wanted to buy this shirt right off my back. I mean, you know, that'd be pretty intimidating, wouldn't it? If your name is Grace, they have this shirt. You go to game night, you know, you go to play a tennis match, and you wear this, and you're like, Whoa, intimidation factor. She's even got a shirt that says she wins every time. That could be a little uh, intimidating. But as we come to uh, this passage in the book of Acts and our journey through the Acts, it's really kind of the rest of the story of chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. And as we get to verse 18, which we're going to cover from verses 1 to 18, you can't come to the end of this chapter and just feel like, celebrating because you see grace winning in so many ways. You know, it's not always like that. You know, some passages that are descriptive and you're you kind of reading at the end and you're kind of like bummed because, because we're in a spiritual battle. And sometimes there's defeat and failure. Sometimes when we underestimate or underutilize God's grace, because if we trust in God's grace, there will always be victory. But we don't always do that. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. I mean, don't underestimate it. Don't underutilize it in your life. Allow God to work. Peter would later write in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God's grace is always sufficient if we allow it to be in our life. So let's look in this passage and look at how there is uh, victory in grace, uh, four different ways, and then kind of think about that, what that means for, for our own lives today. Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went into Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed f- uh, animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up into heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me not to to have any hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. 
He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. First of all, grace wins over the judgmental attitudes of immature believers. At the end of chapter 10, Cornelius and his family had put their faith in Christ. They had received the Holy Spirit and been baptized. And, and they asked Peter to hang on for a couple of days to teach them so that they begin to learn what it means to follow Christ. Meanwhile, news spread even without the help of social media. All the way to Jerusalem, 75 miles away. I imagine Peter might have had one of these thoughts like, wow, you know, what just happened with Cornelius was awesome. How am I going to explain that to the brothers in Jerusalem? And he had a, a right thought. The problem with reports is that they invariably leave out important facts and sometimes exaggerate others. So when Peter does go back to Jerusalem after a 75-mile journey, he probably didn't even have time to unpack his bags when a group of believers called the Uncircumcised Party came and quickly confronted him. It says that they criticized him. You see, these were people who had embraced Jesus, but they also still held to the law of Moses, which was fine, but also to their man-made traditions, which got very confusing and messy. You see, maybe they were okay the Gentiles became believers, but first they had to become Jews. They had to be circumcised, follow the holy days, follow the diet. And that's what the church wrestled with. We'll see these beliefs bubble over in Acts chapter 15 in a couple weeks. I mean, the church wrestled with how do Gentiles accepted by God? Do they first have to become Jews? The biggest challenge of the early church. And what shows their immaturity, though, is that they were more concerned that Peter broke the rules and went to the house and ate with them than the fact that these people had put their faith in Christ. The whole household had embraced Jesus. But they were more concerned about Peter <laughs> breaking the rules. It's important to note that Peter did not go against any of God's commands. He did go against their man-made rule. And there's a big difference. You see, what starts off as a, a passion for holiness, right? God said, be holy for I am holy, okay? That's great, that passion. But then we begin to create all these rules to make sure we don't break that command, right? But we come up with all these rules and obstacles and hurdles, which sometimes can be helpful, but when we start using them as a litmus test of whether or not someone can be accepted by God, 
that becomes an issue. Grace begins to get squeezed out. Here's an example of an extra biblical prohibition taught by the rabbis. If a Jewish man was walking down the street, he was to hold his robe tightly around him so that he wouldn't bump against a Gentile. If he would bump against a Gentile, he would have to either burn that robe or ceremonially clean it. And this is how bad it got. In some of the writings, God's grace got so squeezed out that they believed that Gentiles were considered to be created by God to keep the fires of hell burning. That's when there's no more grace. It has been squeezed out. Certainly, in some fairness for the Jews, they were under Roman and Greek rule for 400 years, and so their hearts were a little hardened because of that. But no excuse. So when Jesus comes along, the Pharisees criticized him for the same thing. Luke 15, 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, speaking about Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. These immature believers were now doing the same thing to Peter. I call them immature because they weren't hard-hearted like the Pharisees and the scribes had become. They were immature. And why do I say that? Because in the beginning of this section of Scripture, they are criticizing Peter. But once they hear Peter tell the story and hear what God has done and hear how he had granted them the Holy Spirit just like they had to them, their hearts were softened. Their minds were opened up. They began to get a glimpse that God's grace was not just for them but for the Gentiles as well. And so in the end, they are praising God. They are praising God. They're beginning to get a glimpse of understanding that the church is about all races coming together under Christ and that His grace is sufficient for all. And you know, as Christians, even today, we can do the same thing. We can come up with lots of rules. Maybe well-intended in the beginning, but can over time, if we're not careful, squeeze out God's grace. There's the old saying, we don't, uh, see, we don't, don't dance, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. <laughs> you know, Deanna and I went to Taylor, it was a Christian university, and we had a life together statement, which was great, you know. Guys, weren't, we had separate dorms, weren't supposed to go in the girls' dorms except twice a week, and then the door had to be open six inches. You know, that's good protection for these hormonally, you know, active young men and women. But there were a lot of other rules, no dancing, no drinking, even if you were over 18, but no dancing. You know, you don't want that music to start getting, you know, those hips going. Not good. You know, some traditions, no cards, no cards, oh my word, I would die. I'd never become a Christian. You know, no movies. You know, Taylor, we didn't even have square dancing until our senior year, which I was so grateful for. I mean, how would I know that I wanted to marry Deanna unless I knew how well she dozy doed? I mean, I had to see that before I finally committed, right? You know, it's one thing to put up your own personal fences. Like, maybe you have a weakness in this area and you don't want to sin, so you're going to make some boundaries. 
It's one thing to have your own personal, because you know that's an area of weakness. But then to begin to judge other people by your own boundaries or your own man-made rules, that squeezes out God's grace. And especially when we look at non-believers and expect them to obey the same rules, we kind of cloud God's grace for them as well. Is grace winning in your life? in your interactions with others. Secondly, grace wins over the character of Peter. Peter's response to these uh, religious rule keepers is, is really a powerful testimony of God's grace working in him. I mean, his response is so pastoral as opposed to argumentative. I mean, you might describe the Peter that Jesus first called to follow him as someone who is pretty impetuous. I mean, someone who would speak and then think. I mean, just uh, he was like a bull in the china hutch. Uh, and yet we see him, though, allowing God's grace to work in him and mold him to be the man of God and the leader that God wanted to be. How do we see Peter's response? Peter graciously responds with gentleness. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm just struck how gentle Peter's response. I mean, the old Peter, I imagine, would have lost his patience. I mean, he might have said, do you know who you're talking to? I saw the transfiguration. I am the only apostle that walked on water. You know, who are you, spiritual peon, to criticize me? But he doesn't do that. He responds with such incredible gentleness, gently going over it to help them to understand as he has come to understand. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so he responded so gently with them. Not only that, Peter graciously responds with patience. Look at verse 4. It says, Peter began and explained it to them in order. I mean, he patiently went through the whole encounter with them, detail by detail. He didn't attack them for being immature, the rule followers, but he helped walk them along this path, the same path that he had to walk along. He too had to examine closely, it said, what God was trying to teach him through these visions. You know, sometimes in our interactions with others, we're not very gracious, we're not very patient. My brother-in-law, who's a pastor down in the Quad Cities, was sharing one day as he was preaching, he saw a young lady up in the, in the balcony on her phone. And he said, you know, kind of irritated a little bit. As he continued to preach, she continued to be on her phone. And he started getting a little, little, uh, a little angry. He wanted to call her out right then and there in the sermon, but he thought otherwise. But he thought after, this, after the message, he's going to need to give her a little pastoral admonition here. So he was heading her way, and as he was approaching her, he heard her telling her friend next to her that she had invited a friend to church that morning who ended up not being able to come. So she was texting her friend his sermon while he was preaching it because she didn't want her to miss out. He was glad to have been stopped in his tracks. We're not always stopped in our tracks, are we? Peter graciously responds with patience. He also responds graciously by pointing to uh, 
uh, pointing to empathy. He responds with empathy. As he's sharing with them, he's reflecting on how he too struggled with the same thing. That, that he was in the boat. I mean, Peter spent his life with Leviticus 10.10. You are distinguished between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. He shares with them how he too, I mean, God had to speak to him three times to finally get this message through. Because he was like, Lord, I, I've never eaten something unclean. By reflecting on his own personal struggle with the very same thing, he's really helping them come along, kind of put, put themselves in his sandals and say that he's been in theirs as well. He doesn't make light of their criticism, but graciously responds to them. Now that Peter graciously responds with wisdom, he points to how God has really orchestrated this whole event. He doesn't get angry. Instead, he says, you know what? It was God who spoke to Cornelius through an angel. It was God who, who spoke to me through a vision. And it was God who orchestrated the moment that as soon as I came out of that vision, Cornelius' three men were there knocking on the door. And the Holy Spirit said to me, do not hesitate to go with them. And when I'm preaching to them about Jesus, God sends his spirit upon them. That it was God who had unfolded this. And not only that, he sent six witnesses with Peter. In the Old Testament, it talked about two witnesses to verify the truthfulness of something. Well, Peter had six along with him. Lastly, Peter graciously responds by pointing to Scripture. But you know what? We don't always use Scripture graciously. Sometimes we use it as a club, a battering ram. That's not what Peter does. Because what Peter does is he first shows how he had to interact with God's Word. That he remembered what Jesus said. That he had to wrestle with what Jesus said. That John baptized with water, but now you, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. He first wrestled with what he had to learn as he was sharing it with them. Not just attacking it with them. But how everything that happened with Cornelius really lined up with Scripture. And sometimes when we're having a discussion or agreement with someone, you know, if Scripture comes to light, you know, we need to share how we've interacted with God's Word. If it's not, if it's just your own opinion, your own thoughts, then you need to be honest about that as well. At the end, Peter is able to ask them this question. If God gave them the same gift as He gave us, what was I supposed to do? Kind of putting them in the position. What would you have done? Paul would later write to the Colossian believers, let your conversation be always full of grace. And that's what Peter did here. His whole conversation was full of grace. Are your conversations full of grace? Are your disagreements, disputes, discussions full of grace. You see, Peter first allowed God's grace to work in him so it work, could work through him. And many were blessed. 
Third, grace wins over the inadequate righteousness of Cornelius. And I'll just touch on this briefly because Pastor Matt uh, handled it last week, but really can never say it enough because this is the struggle. We either minimize our need for God's grace or we minimize the impact and the effectiveness of God's grace. I mean, on one hand, many people minimize their need for it. I mean, they think they're pretty good people. I mean, if anybody could have argued that they were a good person, it was Cornelius. I mean, the description that we, we looked at him in Acts chapter 2, 10, verse 2, a devout, God-fearing man, a man who was generous to those in need, a man who prayed often. Then the angel even says to him, your prayers and gifts of the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. I mean, this is someone who wasn't even a believer yet. If you think your prayers don't matter, that God doesn't notice when you seek to be generous to others, do good, maybe you need to read this verse. His servants actually called him a righteous man who was respected by the Jewish believers. I mean, think about that. Jews respecting a Roman soldier says a lot. But, but, none of that mattered. Despite what others thought of him, his good works could not make him right before God. His generosity could not make him righteous before God. His prayers did not make him acceptable to God. None of it could minimize the sin in his life. Maybe he looked good to the standard of others, but not to God's standard of perfect righteousness. It was all inadequate. But Cornelius had a heart that was seeking after God, kind of like we talked about for the Ethiopian eunuch a couple weeks ago of what he saw of God in creation, of what he heard about God in the Jewish faith, of what he felt God in his heart drew him to be this kind of person. And so God led Peter to him so that he could hear the truth of Jesus, so that he could hear about God's grace for him, that it was through Jesus he could be made righteous. It was through Jesus that he could be forgiven. It was through Jesus that he could become a child of God. It was through Jesus that his empty heart could be filled with God's very presence. God won in his life and in those is his family. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Cornelius was brought to God that day through Jesus. Grace won. What are you trusting in to save you? Everything is inadequate. Nothing can deal with your sins. Nothing can make your heart righteous before God other than Jesus and God's grace. Lastly, grace wins over the sinfulness of the Gentiles. 
One time, at one point, I say we minimize our need for it. Other times, we minimize the power of God's grace. Someone may think, you know what, you don't know what I've done in my life. I have really messed up. I have hurt a lot of people. And we don't think God's grace can cover that. We don't think God can forgive us. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does say all have sinned and fall short of the God, glory of God. And those sins are worthy of death. But God's grace is more powerful than all of it. You see, sin does bring death. It always brings death. It destroys. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with other people. It destroys our trust. It destroys our hearts. It eventually destroys our conscience. It destroys our minds. Everything. We think sin brings life. Maybe a moment of pleasure. But it doesn't bring life. What does is God's grace. So I love how this passage ends, verse 18. So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance Unto life. Unto life. I mean, there's so much packed in that phrase. What does that mean, unto life? When I was the first Christian, I thought, well, it just means eternal life. That's all it means. It means so much more than that. I mean, eternal life is being in God's presence forever. But that begins here and now in this life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Fullness means God filling your life, even now. I love the picture in the Old Testament. As they would encamp, the tabernacle, later the temple, would be right in the middle of their encampment. All the tribes and their, can and their tents would surround the tabernacle. And the point is, when God is in the center, when He is in the center of our allegiance, the center of our trust, the center of our camp, the center of our love, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, that's when you experience shalom, lahayim, to life, because the author and creator and sustainer and giver of life is right there in the middle of your life. That's when there's life. It's not just eternity. I was a little ambitious uh, by what I was going to cover today, so we can't cover the rest, but this is your homework. I encourage you to read Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Maybe you want to do this as a life group, kind of do this little, little study together. What kind of life does God want to offer you through His grace, through His Spirit? Romans 8 is just filled with it. See how many phrases you can come up with. What kind of life? Does the Holy Spirit want to bring into you because of Christ? I mean, would you say today that you are experiencing the fullness of the life that He has for you? Or would you say that your heart is still aching, that you feel like there's missing something? Read that Romans 8, and, and, uh, and I'd, maybe you'd say you want to talk to someone about that and see, I just don't know. If I'm experiencing what God has for me, the fullness of it, I'd love to talk to you. I think the pastors here would love to talk to you. Maybe that'd be a great life group discussion. But the goal is to having God in the center. Repentance unto life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this uh, beautiful 
this portion of scripture that shares this account with us where we see grace winning in every place. We see grace winning over these immature believers who were rule-bound but are getting more and more a picture of your love and your grace for them and for others. Lord, I pray if we have that bent in our life of rule followers, that people would come to know us more as people of grace than people of rules. Lord, not that we ever take sin lightly, but we certainly examine the scriptures to make sure that it's not just our man-made rules that we're allowing to squeeze out God's grace in our life. We thank you for the example of Peter who has allowed grace to work in him. Lord, I pray that your grace would work in us. So as we interact with others, we would have the same kind of response that Peter had. That it would be filled with your grace. Lord, we thank you that what you offer us on the cross so much more powerful than anything that's inadequate of us. Lord, if there's any of us that are trusting in something that is inadequate to make us right before you, Lord, your spirit would just show us and that we would welcome what you've done for us. For it is by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Thank you for that gift. And Lord, I pray that we all experience more and more the fullness of the life that you have for us so that, so that we don't have to wear a t-shirt that people might see in our lives grace winning so that grace can win in theirs as well. In Jesus' name.